Thank you, Nathan, and thank you, everybody. Uh, good to be with you this morning, and also for those of you online who are worshiping with us, uh, good morning. Today, we continue our series looking at embracing mystery, the story of Job. And as we continue our journey together as a community, as we sit with Job's story, uh, I want you to sit with a posture of prayer this morning. And I, I say that as I continue through and work through uh, some observations from the text, and as we think through applications for our lives, I want to open your hearts and minds, hopefully, to being ready to stir up whatever God needs to do. And so that means a posture of prayer. I'll be asking some questions as I go through for you to consider and pause on. Let that be a moment for you to pray, to ask the Lord how the Lord's guiding you. If you feel led, like you really want to just kind of physically be here and come forward during the service at all to pray, to kneel, uh, we have prayer books here that the pastors of the church will be reading through the week and praying for you. Use those. Also, at the end of the service, we'll have prayer partners. Please don't leave if there's burdens you would like to have us be praying with you in. The reason why I say all that is that when we open the door to suffering and trauma, um, we don't want to be blithe about that. We want to take seriously what it is to be in this moment together as a community and how broken so many people are and traumatized. And Job opens that door wide open. Years ago, my mother's cousin gifted me with a really kind of a strange gift uh, as she was clearing out things as she was getting ready to move into retirement, which was this uh, small old school desk. Uh, She came from rural Oregon and this Desk um, had been in a small schoolhouse uh, generations ago. She had it sitting around and she gifted it to me, probably because I was the one teacher in the family that she thought she could give this to. Uh, So she gave it to me and it sat in my garage for a while and I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it. Uh, And then I decided, uh, hey, you know what? I'm going to fix this desk. I'm going to clean it up. It'll be cool. I'm going to do some work on it. Um, Now, I just want to pause on that for a second because I'm a humanities guy. Um, I did a degree in Victorian literature. Um, I'm not somebody who wanders the, you know, Lowe's or Home Depot actually knowing what to do. I'm just lost, you know, wandering around lost. So DIY projects does set my family a little bit on edge and and fear um, of what's going to happen. So Anyway, I made some trips to, to Lowe's. I picked up some, some sanding materials, got a metal brush, got some other things, and I was ready to roll up my sleeves and start watching YouTube videos uh, like a lot of people do. But anyway, it took most of a summer. I began working on it off and on, scrubbing it, kind of doing some work on it, making mistakes, um, having to ask forgiveness for the language I was using in my garage, uh, and you know, keep moving forward on the project. And as I started to clean it up, I, I, I went through layers literally of red paint, yellow paint, old varnish, kind of scraping and scraping and scraping, and then also getting into the legs of, the, of, of this desk and kind of cleaning it up as well with a metal brush. And you started to see things as you got deeper and deeper into the project, and it started to expose the wood. There were these little nicks and grooves from students long ago who were probably bored during class, kind of etching something into the desk. Uh, there were initials underneath it that I can't imagine what those were for. Uh, there's an inkwell in the corner that I had to clean out and kind of get it out cleans for where inkwells used to go in this desk. And then the process of going through that, one of the things that I found was the deep grain of the wood. 
um, that had been covered up for years. Um, it had been lost to time. And, and as opposed to just kind of keeping the desk in good, good stead, it would just been painted over and then painted over again. And then as fashion changed, another layer of paint. But what I found underneath it in restoring it and kind of working with this wood is this deep and beautiful glow started to come out. And this beautiful desk, you know, as it kind of came together, now sits outside of my office um, in, at Seattle Pacific. And students who have come up for the past, you know, 15 years have sat at that desk for office hours. We've had conversations. And, and the story of Job is really a story about getting to the deep grain of things. It is a story about one man's story before God and before the world he lives in where everything seems to be stripped away that he thought was going to keep him alive. All of the original joints of his humanity are called into question. Um, It is one of the oldest accounts of suffering that we have in human history, and it's so poignant. Um, Scraped, scarred, traumatized. As we sit with this life, um, it is this moment of absolute anguish, and we fall in silence like Job's friends before it, as the sander of our souls gets worked as we watch what happens to him. And so as we sit with the text this morning, I want us to consider together what it is to be on our journey with Job as we get to the deeper grain of our lives. In what ways have we covered up? In what ways have we not allowed the trauma and scars of the years to be exposed? And at what cost? Not only to ourselves and to others. Jesus, in our account that Nathan read for us in Matthew's gospel today, takes us on a journey very similar to what Job goes on. He too is tempted by Satan as he is kind of pointedly asked over and over and over again, what is the purpose of his mission? Who is he? What is his identity? What's this going to look like? And in this tempting narrative, we see these resonances between what Job goes through and what Jesus does as he announces his public ministry. Yet hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, Job's story would have been told and remembered in the community. And there's something about that that I think we need to realize that the story of Job was very possibly in the mind of Christ as he too was being, was being tempted. That there's something in this story that is so ancient and so powerful that it's a sustaining story for even Jesus in the midst of temptation. So it's a story that we need to come back to and we need to listen to. Just as Jesus heeded the words of Job possibly in the back of his mind, we too can heed these words in our own temptations as Jesus was tempted as well. So let's take a moment of silence to prepare for this work that we're going to do together. I'm going to pose some questions for you, and I'm really positioning between what is lost and what is found, and I'll explain that as we get deeper together. And be ready if you want to sit with the Lord in quiet, if you want to come forward, to take advantage of this space to do that work together. So let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this time, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you just fall heavily upon us, both here and for those in our community online. Meet us, O Lord, with your powerful word. Teach us through your servant Job what it means to live before you, what it means to be brought down to the deep grain of our lives, and help us, Lord, to restore that which may have been lost. We ask, O Lord, that your word would illuminate us, bind your holy word to our hearts, be a lamp unto our feet and a path for our days. We ask you do this work in us, Lord, this morning. And all God's people said, amen. So in chapter two that Nathan read, um, we have this encounter of Satan who is roaming the earth. We, we hear that he's going to and fro, 
He's going up and he's going down. So he's, he's covering the entire earth. And for some reason, um, as he was entire, going about the earth, he, he kind of comes up empty. He feels like there's no faithfulness, no righteousness. He's bringing this to God. Um, but God kind of points out, he goes, hey, maybe when you were in line for a latte or maybe when you were kind of stuck in traffic, you may have missed something. And so, so God kind of pulls him back and he uses this word consider, uh, suma in the Hebrew. He wants him to pointedly be attentive to something that he has missed. He says this in verse three, there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God, turns away from evil, persists in his integrity. And the word there is tumah, which is a mirroring sound to samah, consider, tumah, integrity. So we need to consider this integrity of Job that's going on there. And the question of tumah integrity in this, in this passage is that Job has a heart that wants to make the pieces fit together. That's kind of what we think about with integrity. How does all of this mess present some picture that we want to live into? Or better yet, Maybe we think we know what the picture is, but as we start laying the pieces down, it may not be what we think it is. This Christmas, um, my brother and sister-in-law in California sent a Christmas gift to us as a family, which was a thousand-piece uh, jigsaw puzzle. And uh, for those who know me, I'm not very patient with jigsaw puzzles. As a matter of fact, I'm not a very patient person, period. Uh, and so this puzzle comes and we decide, okay, let's tackle this thing as a family. So we clear off a space on the dining room table uh, and we pour out all the puzzle pieces and start doing the work of kind of putting colors like colors. And if you've ever done jigsaw puzzles, it's kind of a strategy that people have. Okay, let's start on a corner. Let's get an edge. Maybe that'll kind of build up some things. But the thing about the puzzle itself was that the picture that we were creating was kind of creepy. It was this winter scene uh, that was supposed to be this beautiful, like Thomas Kincaid painting with like glowing little, you know, little houses and snow and, and Christmas trees. But the kids who were playing and the snowmen and things like that were a little bit like out of a Stephen King novel. Um, they, they weren't necessarily like really kind of interesting. And so the more we started create this, this picture, we've, do we even want to make it? Does it, you know, you know, I mean, and, and so we would like watch a Christmas movie, then people would wander back and then get frustrated. And then we make cookies and we come back and get frustrated. And then it became a point of like, look, we got to get this thing done. We got to get done before New Year's Day. And so it was like a push on Chris you know, on New Year's Eve to get it done. And we completed it. The reason why I tell you this is that when we think about integrity, when we think about what Job is doing, Job is not approaching the puzzles of his life because he like just wants to get it done. It's not an act of, of just gritting his teeth. It's not just bearing down. He has a deeper question and what's formed him as a person of integrity, which is there must be a picture worth framing with this life. There must be something worth doing. It isn't just a, a survival is sufficient kind of mentality. There's something bigger going on. So in chapter two, when we find Job literally stripped to the grain of his life, and his very humanity seems to be taken from him, three big things are lost. And this is where the lost and found of this sermon comes up. Three things that get lost and three things that perhaps we as a community can be found in. And those three things that are lost that I have for you in the bulletin and also online, you'll see are body, soul, and spirit. 
body, soul, and spirit. And if you've been around Bethany for a hot minute, you'll know that we talk a lot about body, soul, and spirit. Uh, What does it mean for us as disciples and followers of Jesus to live in our bodies, live in our souls, and our spirits for the sake of God? But I want to approach these from the place of Job, because Job loses some aspect of each of these three things. And as I go through each of these three, I'd like you to sit with your own sense of loss this season. In what ways has body, soul, and spirit been taken from you? How have you lost some of these things? And what have you done with that deep sense of trauma and anxiety and loss in this season? So first, body. When we think about body, um, think about it in terms of the resources that we draw from, that you and I draw from, to make our lives work. What are the resources that make your life work? This is our physical bodies. These are the resources that make our bodies continue moving forward. We hear in chapter two, Job is afflicted. He has loathsome sores that go from, quote, the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. His body is deeply, deeply afflicted and traumatized in this moment. And the question I want you to sit with is, As you think about your body, as you think about your life, as you think about those you love and care for whose bodies have been traumatized in this season, where are you taking that trauma now? How are you placing that weight of that disappointment, that anxiety, that ache? Where is it going? And what is it doing to us? And when we sit in it and work, if we don't attend to it, living as we do in a pandemic, Physical health is on everybody's mind. It's everywhere, right? We think about masks. We think about what masks we're using. We think about what, what will the home test actually trace this particular variant. Uh, we look around and we see it in our workday lives. Will kids be able to get back to school? The amount of emotional trauma that we go through about being bounced around whether schools are going to happen or not happen. Uh, we think about our workplaces. We think about the people we love. We think about family members um, who are afflicted by this. Um, What does it mean to make safe spaces for our community? And this trauma, this anxiety just bears down on us. It's like this program in the laptop of your computer that's running in the background, sucking all the energy so everything just seems to go slower and slower and slower. Last year, as we were kind of in the midst of kind of the depths of that wave of of the pandemic, I spent time meditating on John chapter 5. And... In John chapter 5, there's an encounter of Jesus with a man at the pool of Bethesda who wants to be physically healed. And the man is waiting to enter into a pool that he believes will heal him. And he can't get to the waters. And in verse 6 of chapter 5 of John's gospel, Jesus asks what feels like a really insensitive and painful question. He asks this, do you want to be whole? Do you want to be whole? He doesn't ask him, do you want your lungs healed? He doesn't ask if you, you know, want to have more money in your bank account. He asks, do you want to be whole? And in this year, as we enter into 2022, that's the question I want to ask you. Do you want to be whole? But what happens if what means to be whole is you start putting the pieces together of the picture don't turn out what you want it to be? What, what happens then? if wholeness doesn't look like what you think it is. St. Ignatius of Loyola is a a really notable member in history, founder of the Jesuit order, and probably one of the most important theologians of of Western thought. In the early part of the 16th century, he was the son of a Spanish merchant. And 
he really um, decided that you know, he had all these opportunities as a person of high class to do many things, but he chose to be a soldier. He chose to go in the military. And during his young life, he lived his own life. As we, re- we read in his recorded works, he was attending the court of the wealthy on a regular basis. He was drinking really heavily, as he said. Um, he was carousing. He was sleeping around. He was just kind of living the life that you do as somebody who has every opportunity in the world. Yet in the Battle of Paploma, he was deployed and he was hit by a cannonball, shattering his leg, leaving him mortally wounded and with a deep, deep infection that took months to heal. And as he was convalescing, as he was trying to survive this wound, um, he laid in this dark room in his father's house um, and just waited, in a sense, at one point just to die and just not have to go through this. But he, he did have healing. Um, His leg was repaired. Um, He got over his infection. But as he was laying in that bed convalescing, he started to read the saints of the church. He pulled them off the shelves and started reading them. He was putting away some other things he had read and started reading these saints. And he realized that his life had a different calling than he ever imagined before. This journey took him to a very different and dark place, but then brought him into a different place altogether. He was never fully healed in the way he wanted to be healed. His leg was perpetually limp. Um, He had one leg longer than the other, and it was a representative in his very body that his body was not what it used to be. But in going through this journey, he says that he became whole in a way he never knew he could um, as he endured and sat before God to put the puzzle pieces together in a way maybe that he never expected. St. Ignatius of Loyola then wrote what he calls his first principle of spirituality. I want to read this to you, and I want you to think about this as a prayer, maybe in this moment of body prayer, to pray this for yourself. And it's a hard prayer to pray, I'll say that right now. In everyday life, then, we must hold ourselves in balance before all these created gifts, insofar as we have a choice and are not bound by some obligation. We should not fix our desires on health or sickness, on wealth or poverty, on success or failure, a long life or a short one. For everything has the potential for calling forth in us a deeper response to our life in God. Our only desire and our one choice should be this. I want and I choose What better leads to a deepening of God's life in me? Let me say that last part again. I want and I choose what better leads to a deepening life in God's life in me. What does it mean for us to pray that prayer and expect that maybe as we're laying down the puzzle pieces of our life as it starts to come together and pray what it means to be whole, what if the picture isn't what we want? What if it's what God desires in some powerful way to redeem us and to bring us into this season of brokenness and hardship, but something in this is in there that if we can just get real with it together, what would that prayer be for you? Second, soul. When I use the term soul, I'm talking about purpose. What is your purpose? What is your drive? In addition to assessing how we take stock in our prayer life about our physical lives and our bodies, Job is also asking a serious question of soul purpose, which is, what is the deep reason why I am 
doing this work I'm doing? Why, why am I accumulating wealth? Why do I serve at the church? Why, what do I, why do I even go to college? What do I want? What do I desire? What is that? Earlier in chapter 1 of Job, Job, uh, in, in, sorry, in chapter 1, verse 9, Satan is, is asking this question to the Lord, and it's a really interesting question, and I have it in your bulletin at the top of there, which is this. Does Job fear the Lord for nothing? Really interesting question. Does, does Job fear the Lord for nothing? This word nothing, hello, um, is, is, is hearkening back to Genesis 11.6 in the Hebrew, where humanity was attempting to ascend to the heavenly realms on their own power. They were using their own technology, their own minds, their own conception of what heaven should be, building what we famously call the Tower of Babel. And in chapter 11, as the humans are sweating and they're working and they're building this thing because they know what they want, the heavenly hosts are surrounding them and they're musing to themselves in Genesis 11, verse 6. This is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing, hello, same word that's used, that they propose will now be impossible for them. And another way of saying this is this. If humans set their mind to nothing, a life without God's purpose and their own, they can have it. (laughs) If they want it, they can have it. And so here's the question about Job in this way, is that does Job fear God for the right reasons? (laughs) What, what, What is he in it for? What are you in it for? I I have this thought experiment I do sometimes in some of my classes where we go through um, what I call the train test, which is when do you get on and off a train? And so we're talking about your relationship with God and say, okay, now if this was taken away, would you stay on the train with God? If I took this away, would it take it off the train with God? If God said this wasn't going to happen, would you stay on the train or not? At what point do you get on and off the train And this is what is really the question of the 42 chapters of Job, is if God is going to be fully, completely God, and not in the way we expect, will we stay on that train? Or will we get off it? And what point for you is that? And that's a question of soul. And be honest with yourself. What is that point for you? And what happens when we come to that point? We hear in in chapter one that Job was a complete man. The word Tom is used there to say he wasn't perfect, but he, but he did the right things, right? He's morally upright, he's religious, he's ethical. Yet as we get deeper into the book over the next few weeks, and I really want you to kind of keep coming back and following our journeys of church through Job, because this is a powerful book, is that we find that Job still has more to learn about faithfulness. He may be a complete man, but he still has got a lot more to learn about God. Um, and, and, and this sole purpose that gets built into him is really powerful, And it's a great gift for us to be in a community around. So body, what are areas of prayer and work that you feel like God needs to meet you in? Or what are you hoping to God meet you in, in your questions of body right now? In your soul purpose, what are areas for you of discouragement and hope that you need to lay before God in this season as we explore Job's journey together? And lastly, drive. Stripped of his bodily resources, as we hear, and questioning his own sense of purpose, Job literally sits down in the passage we read today, sits down, and begins to scrape his body with a broken piece of pottery. Now, whether this is to ease the itching of the sores that we talked about, or whether it's self-mortification, the biblical scholars haven't really come to a, a conclusion on that point. But what's clear is that Job literally is stripped to the grain of his life, but he's now just keeps doing the sanding process, just keeps sanding himself deeper and deeper. 
And he's not moving anywhere at this point and for quite a while. As we hear later in the chapter, Job's friends show up and they just sit in silence for seven days and seven nights. Silence for seven days and seven nights. Not saying a word because we hear in verse 13, they saw his suffering was very great. This is such a poignant scene to think about in silence, to sit in that moment when there are no words, no answers, just absolute raw presence of trauma that you're in and nowhere to go, stripped of the drive to move forward. When we speak about spirit as drive, it means what is that, what is that thing that animates your life? What causes you to do action and to move forward? The word spiritus in Latin, where we get spirit, um, is also drawn from rucha in Hebrew, which means wind or breath or nefesh in the Greek, which is this animating life force, right, that God brings into our lives. It's the force that moves the waters. It creates life, moves us forward. But what happens in our life when all the blowing and pushing of God's animating spirit doesn't move us? Or better yet, in Job's case, what happens when we're in a season what sailors will call dead calm, where the, the, your sails are luffing, right? There, there's, nothing, there's not enough to push you forward. There's no wind in sight. There's no sense of direction. Trauma is so deep and pervasive that the sails are just maybe even ripped apart. So even if the wind came, you probably think it probably wouldn't matter anyway. And you're just sitting there. And at this moment in Job where spirit seems to be gone and drive seems to be gone. We need to attend to a question that Job asks later in, in chapter 28, which is, I think, one of the most important questions in the entire 42 chapters, which is this. Where can wisdom be found? When our body is stripped of what it has, when our sense of soul purpose seems to be broken, when our spirit is depleted, Where can wisdom in this world be found? And this is where I want to turn our peripheral attention to three things and three resources that we have from God in our scriptures, in the story of faith, that we can turn to and and lean into when our bodies and our souls and our spirit are depleted. First, we can be attentive, shema, shema. And these are all listed in, in the bulletin. In Deuteronomy 5, Moses gives the commandments from God to God's people in Israel to be the organizing principles to make life now that they are on the journey of faith. And in Deuteronomy 6, the next chapter, Moses is told by God to, this is how you're going to live it out. This is what you're going to do. And Deuteronomy 6.4 famously begins with this call to listen or be attentive, Shema, the word Shema is there. Hear, O Israel, Shema, Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're away, when you lie down and when you arise. To be attentive is to gather together and to point each other to the places where we may be glimpsing God's presence. If you are depleted of hope, come and borrow it from the community. If you are broken and traumatized, Tell that story to the pastors and people of this church so that we can sit with you on the ground seven days, 14 days, 21 days, and hopefully be attentive to where God shows up in those moments together. 
recite them with your children and talk about them, we hear, is because we need to be attentive for each other's sake. Years ago, I was in Guatemala as part of a group from SPU, um, meeting with some microenterprise groups and villages that were trying to restore some economic certainty in some areas. And I was up in this mountain region, uh, Cabrican, in Guatemala. And when I was up there, my translator was walking me around and showing me different crops and different programs that people were doing. And he had this son named Gustavo, um, who was about four and a half years old, typical four and a half year old kid running around, just goofing around on the trails and stuff. And um, every once in a while, he'd run ahead as we were kind of walking around. He started screaming and yelling and pointing at something on the ground. And it was like, you know, what has got into him? And so I'd ask his dad, you know, hey, what, what's, what's going on? And go, oh, don't, don't worry about it. He's just, you know, he's just a kid. Don't worry about it. He'll just keep walking. And then he would just kind of run around and he'd do something. Ah! Start screaming at something else. So finally, I got his dad to translate. And he goes, well, he saw a caterpillar. <laughs> and, he, and then another time he would see a spider, right? And it was like such excitement. It's like he discovered Bigfoot or something, right? I mean, it was like this awareness that he had. And, and I always think about Gustavo's excitement for the little things. And I'm reminded of Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, in, in the fourth chapter, verse 10, when he says, who has despised the day of small things? You know, and, and what the prophet is trying to say is remember to be attentive to the small ways that God shows up, the small things. And as we heard from Stephanie talking about urban impact, you know, attending to the small things can change our world, <laughs> can change our economy, can change a life, right? So be attentive, Shema. Secondly, Shaddad, El Shaddai, be made and unmade. Throughout the book of Job, the way that God's name is addressed by Job, it changes throughout the entire book. There's different names that are used. And this is very common uh, in, in the Old Testament. El, Allah, Elohim, El, El Shaddai. These are all different expressions that get used as Job is trying out different ways of expressing the identity of God as God's changing before him. Um, and as we journey through the chapters of Job together, we're going to see these different names changing as Job's understanding and mystery begins to be enlarged and change as well. As we go through seasons of trauma and loss, the labels we use, the, the resources we use are going to change. What worked for us when we were confident, when we were young, when we were healthy, just don't work anymore. The songs we sing, not the songs we want to hear. We move from praise to lamentation. We move from loud to silence. Uh, we need to be aware that things change as we change through this season we're in. And God wants us to be in that state as well. In chapter 23, when Job does get up to move, when Job does stand up to try to find out where God is, he doesn't even know where God is. He doesn't know if God's north, south, east, or west. Job decides to move. And when he does, the name that he chooses to call is El Shaddai or Shaddad. And this name Shaddai in Exodus 6, 2, and 3 is a name by which Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's a very ancient name of God, the, the Almighty, the one who can make and unmake, the one who can make and unmake. And to get to the point where we can say the name of El Shaddai, the one who is our maker and our destroyer, the one who can build us up and can take away, when we sit in that reality, we are starting to come closer to wisdom about what it means to follow God. What will it mean for you in this season to sit with the name of God in a new way, as Job did? And lastly, shalom. Lastly, shalom. 
This week, and I'd like the band to come up as well as we kind of sit with this together. But this week, we celebrate together Martin Luther King Jr. Day tomorrow. And we consider once again what it means to be as a community of reconciliation in the grittiness and truth-telling that this season is going to require from us. King's dream for the church was always embracing what he called the beloved community, the beloved community, which is a beacon of hope in a dark and broken world. And the only way we can do that is if we become good stewards of our pain in this time, like Job is, that we are allowing ourselves to be stripped down, to expose the scars and the brokenness of our lives for the sake of others who need to know that they're not alone in their suffering and their trauma. In your breakdown of your body, in your pain of your soul, in your loss of spirit, gather together with us so that we can steward that gift to others and begin to give a beacon of hope for what the beloved community can be. This is what Shema of peace and rest and hope looks like. My colleague, uh, Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil, who many of you are familiar with, um, in her book, Roadmap of Reconciliation, that our church is using and walking with, has this wonderful statement about Dr. King. And I love this. And I'm going to close with this word. Our beloved community might be a long way off. But like Dr. King, I believe that it will eventually be actualized and that we can already see glimpses of it here and now. We can be the bell ringers. We can point the way and show others what it'll look like. What will it mean for us today to be bell ringers of hope, even in our trauma? And what it means to hear that bell in a dissonant time will be so beautiful that, that in, rather than just being people who desire to go against the grain, maybe we can be the church of the deep grain who go deeper and deeper and deeper to what God wants to make us become, build us up to be, to tell our stories, that even though our bodies and souls and spirits have been depleted like Job, that the God of the universe, El Shaddai, is still here. And we can ring that bell for others to hear. So as you sit in prayer, I, I pray that as we continue in worship, you use this time to sit with God in those places. How are you called right now to sit with your body? with your soul and your spirit? What prayer do you need to tell that story better as you are more attentive to the God who desires to bring you to shalom? So let's gather and worship and continue as we listen to God's word together.